morning I'll be reading from John 21, 15 through 25. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now he said this signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turning around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? So Peter seeing him said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, the saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if you want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were all written in detail, I suppose even the whole world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the richness of this book and for the witness of John and for the testimony that we're going to hear this morning about you. Help us to see you and to honor you and to be changed by you this morning. Be with Tom. Give him words and wisdom and guide him as he uh, is led by your spirit to share with us. For we thank you in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Well, I got to tell you, it's almost painful to me to come to the end of this gospel. This has been such a marvelous journey for me personally. It's as if I get to spend uh, most of every week just beholding Christ, because that's, that's what we have in this gospel. I want to let you know that next week we will actually do a, a wrap-up. We're going to do uh, look at some of the major lessons. My brother Kerry, I love what he said. He said it would, it would be presumptuous to say we're going to look at the major lessons of John. So we have to put the word some in there because there's an awful lot in here. But we'll, uh, we'll be th- doing that and, and be thinking about that between now and next Sunday. What are the things that you have gleaned and learned? What are the things that God has impressed on your heart about Jesus, uh, about your relationship with Jesus Christ, about this marvelous union that Jesus came from heaven to earth to give to us, between us and the living God. A missionary that uh, many of us know and love gave me uh, a most excellent lesson on following several years ago. I'm paraphrasing, but he said it in essence. He said, in the West, especially in the United States, when you talk to someone about following Jesus, you have to carefully explain what you mean. 
And there's still generally some confusion. It takes several lessons before Westerners get the point. And he said, uh, but when you talk to someone in the East about following Jesus, you really don't have to explain nearly as much. In the world of rabbis and imams and gurus, people know what it means to follow someone. They know that it means you study that person and you watch to learn what that person says and does, and then you say and do those things. It means that you go where he goes, and you do what he does. You strive to be as much like that person as you possibly can. That's what it means to follow. Our culture used to say, (laughs) lead, follow, or get out of the way. That was a bumper sticker when I was in high school. Now our culture screams out to us, follow no one, submit to no one, be like no one but you, just do you. Nobody can lead you as well as you can lead you. And if you want proof of man's high-handed rebellion against God, that'll do it right there. Because in God's design for mankind, There is no such thing as a leader who is not a really, really good follower. That was true even of Jesus in His perfect submission to His Father during His earthly ministry all the way to death on a cross. When Jesus redeems lost sinners, He brings us back into that gracious design. He makes us redeemed followers again. His gracious, uncompromising call to all whom His Father has given to Him is the same call that He presents in His final words to Peter. And I mean His final words to Peter in this Gospel. You follow Me. Over and over in John's Gospel, Peter has been the poster child for Jesus' most pointed lessons to His beloved disciples. I love the, there's a comment that William Hendrickson made in his commentary. He said, he said, Peter acts before John. John understands before Peter. <laughs> I believe in this final chapter of John's gospel, what we see is the great commission made deeply personal. This is Christ's Full assignment for all of his disciples in every age. His, his core assignment, if you will. We saw the first part of that grand assignment last Sunday when we looked at verses 1 through 14. And the assignment there is fish for the lost. Be fishers of men. In utter dependence on the only real catcher of men. And that's Jesus. In the first chapter of the book of Acts, just before the disciples watched Jesus ascend from earth to heaven, To return to His Father. Jesus said to them, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be My witnesses. Both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. That commission to evangelize the world is very much the same as what Jesus said to His disciples in John chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. Again, speaking of the Spirit coming, He said, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, 
who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me and you. You will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. But the call to evangelism, to proclaim Christ to all mankind, is only part of our assignment as redeemed agents and ambassadors of Jesus. The other part of his assignment and his commission to us as disciples is seen here in Jesus' words to Peter in these final final verses of chapter 21. The first part of the commission is fish for the lost, and the second part is shepherd the found. In the last three verses of Matthew's Gospel, the resurrected Jesus said to his disciples, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. But making disciples requires more than just fishing for the lost. It requires shepherding, caring for the found. That's Jesus' commission in the end of this passage. And it's presented as a deeply personal matter. Jesus' first question to Simon is, to Simon Peter is, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I don't believe he's asking, do you love me more than you love these other men? He's asking, Simon, do you love, do you love me more than these men love me? Now that's a really legitimate question for Jesus to ask Peter, considering what Peter had been saying not very long before this, right? In chapter 13, when Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot come. You'll be able to come later. You cannot come now. You remember what Peter said? He said, Lord, why can't... He didn't say, why can't we follow you now? That's not what he said. He said, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. It's as if, it's as if he's saying, eh, those other guys can do whatever they want, but I'm going with you. In fact, I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. He seemed to be declaring that he had a greater love for Christ, a greater allegiance to Christ than the other disciples. <laughs> but Jesus kind of put him in his place, didn't he? Peter would never forget how Jesus responded to him. He said, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a cock shall not crow until you deny me three times. And three times, Peter did just as Jesus said he would do. And now, three times, Jesus asked Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter's response here is different than before. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, I don't believe for a second that Peter is appealing to his personal track record at this point. Uh, if he were, uh, you know, he'd be even denser than the average post. Peter is intent here on 
turning the, handing the ball back to Jesus. His, I believe his intent, by the way, is most clearly shown in his third of the three responses when he says, Lord, you know all things. You know all things. You know that I love you. See, he's saying, Jesus, nothing's hidden from your sight. I mean, this is, this is the master who knew the, the heart of Nathaniel before he ever even saw him. This is the one who said that he knew what was in all men. And I think that's what Peter is asserting. You know. Three times Jesus said to him, take care of my sheep. And again, it's no coincidence that the number of times Jesus asked Peter if he loved him matches up with the number of times Peter denied Jesus on the night of his arrest. Peter needed to remember that the mission that Jesus was handing to him and to the other disciples was being given to to men who were unworthy of that calling. And we all need to know that about ourselves all the time. I, I pray with all my heart that that has become clear to all of us as we proceeded through this gospel. Jesus has gone out of his way on numerous occasions to make it clear to his disciples that they are not worthy to be his disciples. And they are not worthy to be his ambassadors after his return. We are all completely unqualified for the assignment that Jesus has handed to us. In fact, it's worse than that. We are disqualified from that assignment on our own merits. Our one and only qualification to act as ambassadors of the living God is Christ in us. Period. He is our qualification. He is our worthiness. He is our sufficiency. He is our power. But we would miss the most critical point of this critical passage if we concluded that Christ's only goal here was to give Peter one more lesson in humiliation. Because the great lesson in this poignant conversation is the lesson we talked about in our worship this morning. It is the unbreakable connection between our love for our shepherd and our care for his sheep. A whole lot has been written and preached about the two Greek words for love that are used here in verses 15 to 17. The assertion, the typical assertion is that the Greek word agape always refers to a higher and purer form of love than the word phileo. The first two times that Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? He uses the word agape. But Peter's reply all three times is, Lord, you know that I love you. And he uses the word phileo. The third time that Jesus asked the question, he uses the word phileo. I hate to disappoint, but along with D.A. Carson and Bob Deffenbaugh and numerous others, I believe that whole discussion is way overblown and that it distracts from the most important lesson of the passage. Very often when we spend our time focused on subtleties and nuances, we're missing the forest for the trees. That doesn't mean those words don't mean anything. doesn't mean there's no nuance there, but I think we get lost in that sometime. And by the way, these two different words for love are used synonymously in this gospel. Both are used of the love of the Father to the Son. John 3.35 and 5.20. Both agape and phileo are used of Jesus' love for Lazarus in chapter 11. 
And it looks very much like John is just mixing synonyms in his record of this conversation to keep our attention to make a bigger point. When he says to Peter, tend my lambs, and then he says, shepherd my sheep, he uses two different words for tend or care for, and he uses two different words for sheep. But he's not talking about two different groups of people, and he's not talking about two different assignments. So, enough said about that. What are we supposed to learn from this conversation between Jesus and Peter? Well, three times, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And three times, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, you know that I love you. And three times Jesus replied, take care of my sheep. He didn't say, Peter, you're wrong when you say I know all things. You're wrong when you say that I know you love me. I can't possibly know if you love me until I see you caring for my sheep. This would have been a great opportunity to make that point, but that's not what Jesus said. The progression here is beautiful. Your love for me will drive your love for my sheep. Your love for me will be the engine of your love for my sheep. And the point of Jesus' threefold repetition of the question, do you love me, takes this progression back to its first step, to its cause. Peter, my love for you is what created your love for me. You remember your denial of me, Peter? I died to save you. Now I have an assignment for you. I've proven my love for you. And I know you love me. Now, out of love for me, shepherd my sheep. Friends, this is one of the most pervasive themes in the whole Bible from cover to cover. And nowhere is it more front and center than in John's Gospel and in John's first epistle, which was cited this morning in the worship. If I asked you what the most well-known verse in John's Gospel is, what would you say? 316, nobody has to hesitate. For God so loved the world. And as Bob explains well, that means God loved the world in this way. That He gave His He sent His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's how God loved the world. In John 17, in His amazing prayer to His Father just before His arrest, Jesus declares that His Father loves all of us whom He has given to His Son even as He loves His Son. And it is upon the foundation of that amazing love that Jesus asks His Father to glorify Himself through our unity with one another. Our love for one another in Him. See, His love for us as His redeemed is the fountain from which our love for one another flows. His love for us as His redeemed is the endless, overflowing fountain from which our love for each other flows. It's so easy to turn that backwards, to invert that. Listen to these two propositions and think about what's actually supposed to motivate our love for one another, to drive that love for our fellow saints. First proposition, we must love others to prove our love for God. 
Second proposition, we are compelled to love others because God proved his love for us at the cross of Jesus. We love because he first loved us. That first statement, we must love others to prove our love for God, it has a strong element of truth, of biblical support, if you change it up just slightly. If you say, our love for others is proof of our love for God. That's what happens to those who have been infected with the love of God. Is they love. But the the direction is critically important. John's gospel everywhere presents God's amazing love as a love that overflows to us and then overflows through us to others, especially to those who are of the household of God. (laughs) The words for love, I thought I was the only one who did this, but I found this in in the uh, footnotes on Bob's commentary, so you can, it's amazing. The words for love occur 57 times in John's gospel, more than in any other book of the Bible, more than in all the other gospels combined, 33 times for all of those. But the highest density of the words for love in the New Testament are in John's first letter, his epistle to the churches that we know as 1 John. 46 times in five chapters. 46 times in five chapters. In that letter, John makes the connection over and over between God's love for us in Jesus Christ and our love for each other in the body of Christ. Listen as I read just a couple of brief excerpts from 1 John 3 and 1 John 4. Just listen. We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? By this, by this, the love of God was manifested in us that God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Listen. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, John goes on, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The direction is crystal clear. The dependence is crystal clear. Our love for the brethren comes from God's love for us. Now if that seems elementary... Beloved, it's very easy to lose sight of it. The reason John's epistle continually presents our love for each other as the visible demonstration of our love for God is precisely because God's love for us compels us to love Him and our love for Him compels us to love His people. How quickly in the self-absorbed impulse of our flesh, we invert that beautiful progression and we make it about our performance instead of about Christ's perfection. And when we do that, it's very interesting, when we do that, we end up taking John's first epistle whose explicit purpose is to give assurance of eternal life to those who believe in the name of the Son of God and we use it to undermine that assurance instead. Here is the always consistent biblical progression, beloved. God's love for us, proven beyond a shadow of a doubt 
by the death of Jesus Christ in our place compels us to love Him. And our love for Him compels us to love His sheep. Including those sheep who haven't been brought into the fold yet. Thus we must love the lost. And we do. God's incomparable love for us, proven at the cross, is the most contagious thing in the universe. It cannot be contained or constrained or hidden. The love that existed from eternity past in the Godhead, in the Trinity, the love that existed from eternity past between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit has been extended to include us in Jesus Christ. And God has left us here for this short time on this cursed earth to extend that same love to others. And the two ways that we do that are both set before us in this concluding chapter of John's Gospel. We fish for the lost and we shepherd the found. I loved it. At the men's retreat this year, you know what Bob's, theme, Bob's central theme was? That we are all shepherds. We're all called to shepherd God's people. Read Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. You'll see what I'm talking about. It's the, it's the job of the whole body. The fact that God appoints some under-shepherds. We're just sheep, guys. Just like you. That's our glorious assignment. Fish for the lost, shepherd the found. And in that assignment, Jesus is our perfect forerunner. We know what to do because we know what He did. The last sentence of verse 22 is Jesus' last command in this gospel. And it's addressed directly to Peter. You, follow me. The word you is emphatic. It's emphatic first because of its position in the sentence as the first word. And it is emphatic because of its inclusion in the sentence. See, in the Greek, the second person singular pronoun you is already implied in the verb. To follow. So for Jesus to actually say the word you means he was emphasizing the word you. Peter, you, follow me. When Jesus first said to Peter, follow me, just a few verses before that in verse 19, he spoke those words immediately after telling Peter that he, Peter, would one day die by the same mode of execution by which Jesus had been slain. We'll look at that just a a little bit more in a moment. But after Jesus revealed to Peter that he would die by crucifixion just as Jesus had, he then said to Peter, follow me. And at that point, he either started or continued walking. And Peter followed him in the most literal sense. And as Peter walked with Jesus, John followed some distance behind. And after a little while... Peter turned and looked back and he saw John back there and he said to Jesus, he said, uh, Lord, what about this man? <laughs> and Jesus said to him, if, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? I love what people do with statements like that, right? <laughs> Apparently a big tradition arose in the early Christian church that said John was going to live forever. So Now, later in his life, you know, quite a bit later, he's saying, you know, I'm starting to get kind of rickety here. I don't think that's what Jesus meant. And he makes that clear. But right after he says, 
<laughs> Jesus says, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? He then said to Peter, you follow me. He's saying, don't concern yourself with what I do with somebody else. You know how many marriages would be saved by that? Don't concern yourself with whether others will suffer more or less in this life for following me than you will. Just follow me. Wherever I take you, whatever you suffer in this life, however and whenever your life may end, you follow me. Beloved, that is Jesus' call to every one of His disciples in every age. That's His call to every child of God sitting in this room. You follow Me. And regardless of where He takes you and how that marvelous calling plays out in your life, here's something you can know with absolute certainty. There's a cross in this for you. Jesus' words to Peter in verse 18 are very sobering. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and they will bring you where you do not wish to go. And to make sure his readers got the point, John adds this comment in the next verse. He says, Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. As most of you know, when a prisoner was to be crucified, the Roman soldiers would lay him on the ground and tie his arms to a large wooden beam. In Jesus' case, they also drove nails through his hands into that beam. Then they made Jesus carry that that very heavy cross beam to the place of his own crucifixion. The other Gospels tell us that the soldiers conscripted a man named Simon of Cyrene to help Jesus carry that heavy wooden beam, no doubt because he had been so weakened by the repeated beatings and the scourging that he had received that morning. Once he finally made it to the location where the crucifixion was to occur on that place, at that place called Golgotha, the soldiers raised that beam up with ropes until, and with Jesus' arms still attached to it, and they secured that beam to a vertical post, thus forming a wooden cross, and then they drove nails into Jesus' feet as well. Here in verse 18, Jesus told Peter that he would one day die by the same means of execution that Jesus had suffered. Crucifixion is awful. Church tradition, actually it's more legend than tradition, has it that when the day came for Peter to be crucified, he refused to be executed as his Savior had been executed, so he was crucified upside down. I have no way of knowing if that's true or not true, but here's what I do know. Jesus said Peter would be crucified. Imagine if God told you straight up that you would one day be publicly executed by a terrible, torturous, inhumane method for following Jesus. You might be thinking, well, I'm glad crucifixion isn't practiced these days. But beloved, no matter what form it takes, in your case, you can count on the fact that if you follow Jesus as He calls you to follow, 
there's a cross in it for you. Matthew 16.24 applies to all of Jesus' disciples. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You, You remember what John said real life is, real eternal life? That they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The only way for you to intimately, personally know the living God is a life laid down. In Luke's record of the same statement, Jesus adds the word daily. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's not just something that happens at the end of your life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. You ever think about that? The way God imparts and causes to thrive life in other people is by causing death in you. But we, we need to understand what that death is like, what it consists of, and what it doesn't consist of. Following Jesus means laying down your life for others on His behalf as He laid down His life for you. It's a daily assignment. You have to do that in order to fish for the lost and you have to do that in order to shepherd the found every day. Beloved, following Jesus may cost you everything that is expendable, but it will cost you nothing that isn't expendable. It will cost you your time, your money, your emotional fuel, often every last drop of it. It will cost you your privacy. It will often cost you your precious plans for an evening, a weekend, a vacation, maybe even your plans for the rest of your earthly life. It may cost you your children, your parents, your brother and sister, maybe even your marriage, and maybe even your physical life. But beloved, God wants you to know, He wants you to know that the cost of following Jesus will never take away from you the things that are eternal. It will never take away from you anything that abides into eternity. Not one thing. Listen, Romans 8.36. You guys know this passage. Right in the middle of, of this section in Romans 8 is this statement that's quoted from Psalm 44:22 just as it is written for your sake we are being put to death all day long we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered see for Jesus sake we who belong to him are being put to death all day every day but now listen to what's on what's on both sides of that statement who will separate us from the love of Christ will tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, 
or sword, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Does that sound like a bad thing? For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. I know I quote that passage a lot. I think about that passage a lot. See, so when you put this statement, we are being put to death all day long in between all of that, (laughs) you're in pretty good shape. Following Jesus may cost you everything that is expendable, but it will cost you absolutely nothing that isn't expendable. Proclaiming Jesus, caring for his people, fishing for the lost and shepherding the found will absolutely involve great sacrifice for you. The servant is not greater than the master. Every faithful follower of Christ will suffer loss in this life Loss that will be of absolutely no consequence to him once this life is finished. Therefore, and let me, let me change that. I should not say no consequence. I should say there will be no regret. There will be no regret. You know what the consequence will be? Cause for eternal celebration. Therefore, beloved, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Dear Father, make us joyful, faithful followers of the lover of our souls. Do your eternally powerful work through us. Rescue the lost. Shepherd the found through these vessels who need your mercies every single hour. Be glorified in us. We ask it in the incomparable name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.